0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast, and this is a topic we've covered before, but I've put a lot of effort into re-looking at the topic and expanding it, and it's on pitfalls and errors, and there's no doubt when you speak about pitfalls and errors, everybody's ear perks up, because although we know that none of us make any errors, it's the people sitting next to us that make the mistakes, and the people at the other hospital, the outside hospital, that makes the mistake. So this lecture is not for you. It's for those people. Article recently published made the point that in radiology practice, interpretation errors between three and four percent, which sounds high in and of itself. However, if the study contains abnormalities, the error rate is in the thirty percent range. Okay, thirty percent. The majority of errors are made of under-reading, where you simply miss the finding. And I think that's a very, very important point because, you know, there's no doubt if you find the pancreatic mass and you start giving a differential diagnosis versus serious adenoma versus cystic uh, mucinous tumor. The bottom line is someone's going to do something about that because they know what they're talking about or what you're talking about, and they're trying to make decisions on management. The big problem is abdominal pain. You read the study as negative, and the patient has a small pancreatic mass, or the patient has a small lung mass, or the patient has a small renal mass. It's the missing that is really the problem, and that's where most of the errors are. There's an article five years before talking about the same topic, missing missed uh, diagnoses, And again, it was simply false negative CT, undercalling. And the things they listed are not a whole lot different than what I would list today, from GI tumors to PEs to pancreas to vascular to bone. Again, lesions are missed for a number of reasons. Incidental findings, lesions at the periphery. All of those are errors that we're all aware of. Now, there's no doubt people will say, and someone wrote an article just recently, that if you read very quickly, and these days everyone is kind of under the gun to do more with less, well, you know, no surprise, if you go faster, you are gonna increase your error rate. This was sort of an artificial study, but they figured out what the rate of each single person is to read studies, and they expanded that rate, kind of like the I Love Lucy adventure when these chocolates are on that uh, belt, and they go faster and faster until she can't uh, box the chocolates. Well, you can see the same thing here, is that the error rate basically triples when you're going too fast. And again, all of us know that, which does make the point as well, is that we really can't go much faster than we're doing now. And if we go much faster than we're doing now, the error rate is going to increase substantially. So that indeed becomes very, very important. Our pilot study found a significant positive correlation between faster reading speed and the number of major misses and interpretation errors. Now, maybe we should double read. In the old days, mammography was double read. Some CT way back when was double read. But these days, it's just impossible to get things done the first time, let alone thinking about it the second time is not something that indeed is going to happen. When you look at malpractice cases, and I never like to focus on malpractice cases, but this interpretive errors is usually the problem, and it's usually missed findings where someone's going to testify against you and say, look at this mass, anybody could have seen it two years ago. And you look in retrospect and say, I can't see it today, let alone when I initially read it. So that is going to be a challenge. Now, when you look at errors, and one of the things we noticed ourselves, although in theory there are an infinite number of, of errors that can be made, and we do see an infinite number of errors, there are certain errors that happen time and time again, whether it's a pulmonary embolism or abnormality in the stomach that's under or overread or pancreas. There are a number of things that really are repetitive. And so in this article by Karen Horton and Pam Johnson, we look carefully at some of the reasons and some of the specifics as to how things were missed and When you know how things are missed or misread, then you're able to take corrective measures and try to uh, really improve your process. So let's talk about several things first, which is some more generic things. So if I ask the question, why is pathology missed on a CT scan? It could be poor reader strategy. You're reading an abdominal CT and you're looking for pancreas or liver or kidneys and you're not paying attention to the lung. It could be that you're overcalling or undercalling disease because you assume there's something present or something not present. I always make the point about the stomach not being distended. What do you say? Is it under distended? Is it tumor infiltration? Is it gastritis? What's going on? So, a poor understanding is another thing. And then assumptions you make. We all make assumptions, and the faster we're reading, the faster the assumptions are. Looking at a trauma case, you're looking at multiple gunshot wounds, you see a lesion in the kidney, but the lesion is very well-defined, sharply marginated, and instead of putting a cursor on it to recognize the mass as 45 Hounsfield units, you'll say, "Eh, well-defined, looks like a cyst, next case, and it was really a renal cell carcinoma. So sometimes it's this assumptions where you're not careful. We also know mistakes are made when things are found that are unsuspected. That is, they're not part of the clinical history or the requisition. So if I say to you, rule out renal mass, you're going to be much more careful about the kidneys than if I say, rule out GI bleed. Well, you'll kind of look at the kidneys with a cursory glance, perhaps, but that's when you will miss things. We know that the incidental findings occur in every organ, and they occur in almost every every age, and they become a critical source of error, and we'll talk about that. And then I put down this last thing. I put this down, I put the date I put it down. It took me a while to think of this one. What I noticed is, I do a lot of 3D, so I reread a lot of the reports and do a 3D mapping. I noticed that a number of errors would happen, not when faculty read by themselves, but when faculty read with fellows or residents. And one would say it should be the opposite, that if you have two people looking at the same case, you should do better. Well, I realize when I watch people sit or go over cases, when you're reviewing a case, you let the other person tell you the history, tell you the findings perhaps, and you kind of agree or disagree. When you read it yourself, you look at everything, the history and pertinent findings. Also, it's how you sit. You're sitting to the left or to the right going over the case. When you're by yourself reading, you're sitting dead center focused and you're dictating. And how often has it been that you're dictating, and while you're dictating, you recognize the pathology. So it's this interaction, this more responsibility, this more being a center portion of what you're doing, rather than simply checking a resident or checking a fellow. So when we speak with the faculty here and we say, you have gotta be very careful because these errors can occur unless you are indeed very, very careful. Now, let's look also at some things, perhaps, that are not specifically disease or organ related, but are kind of generic. So the first one is the field of view. Now, for some things like cardiac imaging, looking at the coronaries or lumbar spine, or any spine imaging, we do very much targeted images because when you have a targeted image, your spatial resolution is higher. And that is surely the right thing to do. No one's gonna argue that. So here's a coronary CTA. You see see plaque in the patient's LAD. You don't see aortic aneurysm. You don't see dissection. This was a triple rule-out. But the point is you have a very nice study, and then you play around with the coronary vessels. And so you show that the right coronary looks good. There'll be some plaque in the left. But the patient uh, is fine. But if you look at those images, and instead of just looking at what I gave you, which is the heart, I did a full field of view, you would have seen a lung cancer in the right lower lung. So something that's very obvious, this lung cancer, which can be resectable, is the same age group as patients who typically are having, or have suspected to have cardiac issues. So by doing a full field of view, you're able to pick up many incidental lung cancers. Now you ask, if you're doing a coronary CT, what what percent of the lung do you cover? Well, it's about 70%. So yes, it's not the same thing as doing a screening CT for looking for lung mets or a lung primary, but you have 70% of the lung and there's a chance you are gonna see uh, the findings. So you need to reconstruct on every cardiac study full field of view. And I think perhaps the lesson learned from this is if you're doing a targeted study, you better also do full field of view even if it's not every 0.75, even if it's five millimeter thick sections every five, just to make sure you're not missing something that indeed becomes important. There was an article by Lee, and this was an article of something I was interested in, where I've noticed many times when patients come in with back pain, they do a spine, spine, T-spine, L-spine, and maybe it's a mild degenerative change, or maybe there's pathology, most of the time it's nothing, But then you wonder, was the patient's pain or symptoms really related to the spine or could have been elsewhere in the abdomen? Because at the level of the spine, depending where you are, there's all sorts of organs and all sorts of pathology. Well, when you think about your practice, and if I have have people show by raising their hands and showing me what they do or don't do, and if I ask the question, do you routinely reconstruct your lumbar spines at full field of view after you do the targeted images, people are going to say, no, they don't. And that's an issue because if you think about it, you have the entire abdomen if you reconstruct it. And so maybe that back pain is due to aortic aneurysm, or maybe that back pain is due to renal cell carcinoma, or maybe it's due to lymphoma. In this article by Lee, extra spinal findings were present in 40% of adult outpatients undergoing lumbar spine CT exams for back pain. Now, most of the time, these lesions were benign, but they were important. The full field of view images were required to visualize these findings in 80% of cases. So in 80% of the time, essentially, you would have missed the finding unless you had uh, a full field of view set of images. And his conclusion was that substantial extraspinal pathologic findings from renal cell to transitional cell, leukemia, sarcoid, aortic aneurysms, 4.3% 4.3% of the patients, it had a major impact. So, again, that would make you seem to have to go back and reconstruct. And that's something that probably we all should be doing. The next thing, sort of on this technical note, is what about the scout film? Now, in the old days, when we had film, you know, remember that black and white stuff? You always looked at the scout view or topogram, whatever your manufacturer called it, because When the technologist printed the images, the first image and the last image were the topograms, the one without lines and the one with lines. So you always looked at it. But these days, it's a separate uh, data set on your PAC system. And so it's often painful to open it, and so you don't. Maybe, perhaps, you go back and select cases, maybe like this one. We are uncertain what's going on. A post-op patient, you see a ring in the left lower quadrant. Then you go on to the CT images, and you can see very nicely That's a sponge that was left behind. Uh, The ring is part of the sponge to make sure you don't leave it behind. And then you see the barium um, off the tag on the sponge. So again, the topogram, if you didn't see the rest of the stuff, the topogram would have made you very, very suspicious. Now, the way this question came to me, it wasn't like we thought it up. Leonard Berlin, many of you know Leonard Berlin and his fine writings, called me up and asked me the question that I look at the topograms routinely, and I said no. And then he described a case, and this case is in the um, AJR, published a few months back, about a radiologist who read a film on a young child who fell, had trauma to the head, read it as negative. And you go back retrospectively, the brain is negative. You do not see that extra, uh, you do not see a epidural or external hematoma. However, when you look at the topogram, you very obviously see a fracture of the skull. Now, when this case went to trial, they asked the radiologist, what about these images? And the radiologist says, yes, I see a fracture, but we don't read the scout view or the topogram. Well, I think the answer is that you're going to have to. Now, because Dr. Berlin asked the question, and when we looked at ourselves, we typically don't read it, we thought about it, and Pam Johnson did a study where we had two expert radiologists, Bob Gaylor Bill Scott, Look at over 2,000 scalp films in the ER setting, consecutive studies, to see if they saw anything. And then we looked at what they saw, and then we looked at what we saw on the imaging. So they saw a lot of additional pathology, fractures, metastasis, and the like. The CT scalp view showed a finding of significance in up to 23% of cases, usually in the anatomic region, uh, imaged by CT, so you're not going to add much. But in as many as 2% of cases, the abnormality seen on the scalp view was not included in the CT field of view. That's very important, 2%. But 2% adds up, as I'll show you in a moment. In a small percent of cases, review of the CT scalp views uh, will disclose pathology not included in the CT field of view. And this, indeed, is very important. And Johnson concluded that you really need to look at the topogram. It should be the first thing you look at or the last thing you look at. And then response to this, Berlin wrote that there's nothing in the guidelines, but perhaps there should be. And although 2% seems to be low, if you have 85 million patients, that's almost 1.7 million patients that will have abnormal findings that indeed are not going to be detected. So I think Berlin does say that you need to follow this and you need to, to look very carefully At that field of view. So, again, there's no excuse that it wasn't reconstructed. The text had the data, just a matter of redesigning your protocols. So, it becomes very, very important. And to emphasize this even more, this month, uh, Daphne wrote an article talking about scout views, integral part of CT exam and should be carefully reviewed. He went through a couple articles, a couple things in his article, which spoke about cases he's been involved with where the topogram was critical. Uh, Scout images are an integral part of any CT exam. It should be carefully reviewed. for findings that may or may not be included in the original field of view of the study. We're responsible for everything on these images. The CT scout images, just like uh, Dr. Jacobson spoke about years ago when he spoke about an edge of film diagnosis. So you have the information, you have to look at it. But that's something that not everybody is doing and I think we're trying to do it better now. But again, it's really a challenge. But you can see from the Daphner article and from the, other, from the Johnson article and from the Berlin article that it's very clear that you're going to be, have to look at the topogram whether you like to or not. And you're going to have to say in this, on the report, I've looked at the topogram, topogram is fine, or it shows this, that, and the other, which you're evaluated better on the CT scan. So it'll add a little bit of time, but not a whole lot much. What else can I say in terms of errors? Well, everyone has a PAC system. Often the PAC systems are old. We moan and groan that it's grown about it that it's not the greatest thing in the world, but sometimes it really isn't. Sometimes it's so slow you don't get the old films or you forget to get the old films. Sometimes it lets you read the images before all the images are over and you do not know about that delayed sequence. There's so many issues with PAC systems. The good news is hopefully new new systems will come along and make things easier. But the systems that are available just are really the best of the worst. So not a very good uh, experience there. And so it's very important to be able to have a good PAC system, to be able to look at the images, get the comparisons, do that very quickly. I think what happens is if the radiologist doesn't get the images quickly or doesn't have the comparisons, they're not going to read it as correct as they could. They're not going to repeat it like uh, you know, and think about the processes. So it's very, very important. Uh, if you have a bad PAC system, it leads to repeat studies. It leads to additional radiation. So you want to make certain your PAC system is up to date. I know it's hard to just go buy a PAC system. It generates no revenue. But if you have something, make certain you have the best version of that uh, uh, that product. At Hopkins, we're going uh, any day now from a uh, from a setup where we had a uh, Magion to care stream. So we'll see how that goes. Now, another important thing sort of as an overview and a source of error is this idea about consultation and second reads. And why don't we stop here and let's go through it in a few minutes in part two. Thanks a lot.